Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 76, recorded on June 17th, 2020. IBM blames Cloud Pod for outages. Good evening, Ryan. How's it going? Pretty good. How are you? And from a bunker somewhere in the Midwest, Peter. Hey, I'm still alive. Still alive. Are you uh, are you prepared for the fun of uh, all of the upcoming protests for the uh, the Friday visit by the president in Oklahoma? Like it's it's close. It's not that close to you, but it's close enough. We have not. Yeah, I haven't heard anything about it here, but I am ground zero for all protests in Kansas City. So I will let you know if we get any. All right, guys. Well, we have some action packed news for the week. As usual, uh, the cloud providers have been busy releasing stuff. So the first one, uh, we're going to talk about IBM. Uh, we haven't talked about IBM in a couple of weeks. Uh, last week, they actually had an outage that I didn't cover here on the show because, you know, we kind of, we don't want to kick vendors when they're down, uh, you know, and so hug ops and, and all those good things. But then uh, they blamed the third party for their several hour long outage. And so then I felt a little bit more, more okay, you know, uh, hitting up at IBM a little bit. So, uh, but they apparently had a, a three or four major, a three or four hour major outage uh, that resulted in all of their storage and cloud globally being unavailable. Uh, apparently, they're now blaming this on a network provider who flooded the IBM cloud network globally with incorrect routing, resulting in severe congestion of traffic and impacted IBM cloud services and their data centers. Uh, mitigation steps apparently have now been put in place to prevent a recurrence. Uh, but, you know, you guys, uh, BGP hijacking isn't super new. And uh, you kind of think IBM, who covers DDoS services with some of their managed services, uh, would be more up to date on this type of issue and be protected Apparently, this isn't the, also the first time they've uh, had DDoS issues. Apparently, when they did the Australian e-census, uh, they uh, blocked uh, re- legitimate Australian users thinking they were DOSing the site. So <laughs> IBM doesn't always have the best luck with DDoS, apparently. Yeah, it always bugs me when the root cause ends up being an external party because it implies that they don't have control. And so then how do you put the mitigations into place if you don't have control in the first place? There's legitimate reasons where, you know, you can have a major outage you know, due to an outside provider, but this seems a little bit like not, not good enough, I guess, protection wise. They are supposed to be releasing a full, full formal RCA. I will be keeping an eye out for it uh, as I'm curious to see what else I have to say about this. But, uh, you know, your network being flooded by BGP hijacking is a, is a pretty common attack that you have to protect from. So definitely we'll be glad to see that they get that fixed. But also I was surprised it was globally impacting where uh, typically a BGP hijacking event would be typically isolated to a single data center. So something's a little bit wonky and how they are doing this networking. I'd be curious to know more. Well, uh, our friend Snowflake, who we like to talk about here on the show and how Amazon is out to kill them as much as possible, uh, has apparently piled for IPO. Uh, their IPO filing uh, values the company at $20 billion, uh, more than 13 times its previous raise in January 2018, where it was valued at $1.5 billion. Uh, time will tell if Snowflake is the next Cloudera or a stalwart of the modern era. And uh, we will keep a close eye on them as they go through their IPO process. I look forward to actually reading the IPO. It is a private IPO filing right now, which means it's not publicly available yet. But as soon as it's available, I'm sure there'll be all kinds of fun things like we spend 95% of our money on marketing yeah. and, make, <laughs> and make no profits. Uh, super good, fun things like that. So I'm excited to see uh, how much money they're actually burning on marketing. It's a lot of money. I mean, those LinkedIn ads that target me are got to be expensive, right? <laughs> well, only if you click on them. <laughs> I click on them every time, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> just, just out of spite. It's like, why are you clicking? Out of spite. <laughs> we got customers who swear by it, though, over Redshift right now. So we will see. 
it is a good product. I, I you know, as much as we like to poke at the fact that I, Amazon seems to hate them. Uh, <laughs> you know, we uh, it is a good product. Uh, it does have a lot of value for the right companies and the right use cases. Uh, and if you're trying to do stuff in that space, I would recommend it. Actually, it's not a bad tool. Uh, it just you, you you can so tell they're going to do something a redshift to try to attack the space. It's just a matter of time. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we haven't talked about COVID-19 in a while other than, you know, we're in day 6,000 of uh, quarantine still. But, uh, you know, one of the things that we talked about several times here about COVID was uh, Azure's troubles. Uh, and so there's been several blog posts in the last week uh, where they talked about Azure response to COVID, how they're going to deal with COVID going forward, what they're doing. Uh, but one of them was a case study on how they scaled uh, Microsoft Teams on Azure. Uh, of course, uh, this is for the article is called Operating at Pandemic Scale and was penned by Mark Resinovich, the CTO of Azure. Uh, and there was a lot of really interesting things in here that I thought I'd share with you, our listeners. Uh, first of all, they went from 13 million daily users in July of 2019 to 20 million in November 2019. So they only grew about a million in six months. And then in April, they supported over 75 million daily active users, uh, which is about 3x the load they were having in November. Uh, they had 200 million daily meeting participants and 4.1 billion meeting minutes. Uh, and there's a quote here from the article. We thought we were accustomed to the ongoing work necessary to scale service at such a pace given the rapid growth teams had experienced to date. COVID-19 challenges assumption with this experience to give us the ability to keep the service running amidst a previously unthinkable growth period. Uh, they talked about several resiliency strategies they used to help deal with this, including things like active-active fault tolerance systems, resiliency-optimized caching, circuit breakers, bulkhead isolation, API-level rate limiting, timeouts, graceful handling of network failures, and more. Uh, they talked about their forecasting models becoming obsolete very quickly. <laughs> so they needed to completely build brand new ones with new assumptions. Uh, and new usage patterns came from existing users, new usage from existing but dormant users, and many new users onboarding to the product all at the very same time. Uh, they found some interesting takeaways from calling, uh, from scaling their systems, including they found that redeploying microservices to favor larger numbers of smaller compute clusters, uh, they were actually able to avoid per-cluster scaling considerations, helping speed up the deployments and gave them more fine-grained load balancing. Uh, which is all about you know managing your blast domain and, and taking advantage of what's available to you from the cloud provider. They uh, moved from specific VM types to being flexible on the VM type or CPU and focusing on overall compute power or memory, uh, and they were able to make more efficient use of Azure resources. So again, this is thinking about your compute as CPU and memory, and not about you know the Intel 7246 processor and you know 3.6 gigahertz or whatever it is per proc. Uh, this is thinking about more as a compute unit. And then, of course, lots of opportunities for optimization in their service code itself. Simple improvements led to substantial reduction in the amount of CPU time. Uh, they spent doing things like generating avatars. And then they started storing their cache state in a binary format rather than the raw JSON uh, using protocol buffer format. Uh, so that was kind of interesting. But there's also some human elements to this, too, which they covered, uh, including they switched their incident management rotation from weekly to a daily rotation. Uh, they insisted that every on-call engineer had at least 12 hours off between their shifts. And they brought in more incident managers from across the company uh, to keep ahead of it and deferred all non-critical changes across their services to a later date. Uh, they talk about they have several things they're going to still do. They're going to continue to move to AKS, as well as they're going to uh, move from REST interfaces to the more efficient binary protocols such as gRPC and removing polling mechanisms in favor of event-based models and embracing chaos engineering. So overall, there's a lot of really good detail here. This is a very lengthy article that I've just tried to summarize as summarizer-in-chief. Uh, I'm sure I've missed some of the nuance, but uh, there's really great stuff here. I really do recommend uh, taking a look at this article and reading through it. Good scaling advice for anybody who's going to go through these, and hopefully they don't have to go through them in a painful method by growing that much that quickly. But yeah, that tons of cool, cool things to think about. And I, I could like point to like a customer for each one of these points 
Uh, just, it's amazing to think they had to go through all this at once. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I imagine they're still dealing with, you know, scaling and, and working through those edge cases that they didn't expect because a lot of things you defer when you're only growing a million users per year. <laughs> when you grow from, you know, 3x your user population in, a, in a, literally a month or two, that's a whole different level of scale you had to rapidly deal with. Do we know how they did? I'm not a huge user of Teams, so I don't know if there were significant service outages. I know everybody had a little bit of a rough time. but So they, they definitely had some initial issues in Italy, uh, particularly scaling in Europe. And they had difficulty scaling Azure to actually meet other customers' demands yeah. uh, to support this. But, um, you know, I think they also heard some things about, you know, bad call quality in some cases and other issues. But um, that all gets stabilized after a few weeks, I think, is kind of the, the status of almost everybody, really. Good for them. Yeah, it's always good to see these things in practice. Like, you know, you know, spend a considerable time of my, you know, day job preaching towards a lot of these points, trying to get people to think about application design and infrastructure deployment in this, these methods. So it's it's a little bit of proof positive that these are effective when you do it right. Hopefully I never have to do it at the scale. Yeah. <laughs> in that timeline. Or it might be really fun to do. I don't know. Yeah, I could see uh, it being a lot of fun and, you know, the firefighting side of it being super attractive and then get really burned out on really quickly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, I think on this very show about four weeks ago, we talked about uh, Amazon Artifact and how we were ashamed that they had stolen such a classic name for when they finally delivered an Artifact solution that we would hope they would someday deliver, which we didn't know about at the time. Uh, And they have now finally answered the question. They have released an Artifactory service or Artifact-type service like Artifactory, uh, and they've named it the compelling name Code Artifact, which in hindsight in 2020, we probably should have seen that one coming. It, being a part of the Code family, you just throw code in front of it and Code Artifact. So, yeah. Way to uh, be consistent there, Amazon, on the naming. We appreciate that. But uh, this is actually really great. Uh, so you can now use the Code Artifact, which I will take a while to roll off the tongue. It doesn't quite have the the nuance of Artifactory or you know, other things like PyPy and others. But uh, you can now download and reference pre-built libraries of software with a package manager at the point in the time libraries are needed, simplified both development and build processes. And of course, there are several open source and commercial tools that exist in the market, including Maven, NPM, PyPy, JFrog, Artifactory, and Nexus. Uh, and several of these open source solutions actually do leverage S3 under the hood, like uh, JFrog's product. Uh, but now finally, with Code Artifact, they can now do this without having to have a third party to play. This is a fully managed artifact repository service for developers and organizations to help securely store and share the software packages used in their development, build, and deployment processes. Today, it supports Maven, Gradle, NPM, Yarn, Pip, and Twine, uh, with more coming soon. So I assume we'll see NuGet and a couple others coming uh, very, very soon. And maybe they'll even unify Docker into this too. That'd be nice. Uh, packages are ingested or published to your repository. Code Artifact automatically scales. And as a fully managed service, Code Artifact requires no infrastructure installation or maintenance on your part. Uh, this is a polyglot artifact repository, meaning it can store artifact packages of any supported type in one repo, repo. And they do recommend you deploy this as a single domain for your organization. And inside of those, that domain, you'll then have repos for each project or service that you want to have in the system. Uh, the domains allow you to basically get some advantages. So any anytime you have a library that you want to share across multiple products, typically in a, a code artifact product, they'll get duplicated numerous times. If they're in a, a single domain, they'll use uh, deduplication to basically reduce that. Um, so you can have the same library actually reference in multiple uh, package repos, and then that all gets deduped on the back end so you don't pay for that multiple times. Uh, you can also do multiple domains if you have a use case for that. Uh, that is supportive. That is not the recommended method. And publishing or adjusting packages from external repos is as simple as using the package manager tools your developers already use. 
And you can also set up uh, upstream providers. So if you would like to have your stuff in there, but then if you miss it, you want to be able to go up to upstream NPM, you can now set that up as well. And they will take care of all of that and cache it for you in the local code artifact, uh, reducing your bandwidth needs. So overall, pretty nice uh, starting entry in this space. Yeah, I'm super excited about this. Every you know, place I've ever worked ever has had to to deal with storing their build artifacts somewhere. And it's always either a combination of Rube Goldberg tribal knowledge-based systems, or it's a very expensive um, third-party solution to manage these things. And I've always thought it was sort of interesting that there wasn't sort of a lot of options here for, you know, or easy buttons, I guess, for, for storing, um, things like, you know, PyPy. When ECR came out, like I was sort of taken aback by their Docker registry. Like the fact, you know, like it was clearly before AWS had really embraced the multi-account strategy because, you know, every account is their own distinct Docker registry and it makes it incredibly hard to share across multiple accounts. So I, it seems like they're coming around on this a bit. Yeah, and the pricing is, I mean, if you just figure five cents a gig, so two cents a gig of that is going to your S3 storage for just the raw storage, which means you're paying three cents a gig for the the head on it of, and the managed service. It seems like a steal. Yeah, it's, it's very affordable. They also charge you by uh, every 10,000 requests about five cents as well. But the request would be the, the minor part of it unless you have a bad deployment artifact happen. Yeah. You know, I was worried they didn't have multi-account strategy, but they did actually cover that uh, as part of launch. Uh, so you can share repositories across accounts using the code artifact resource policies. Um, there are some things still missing, though. Of course, CloudFormation didn't make the cut for their MVP. HIPAA support and other compliance frameworks are not certified for this yet. And then I didn't see anything about promotion or versioning artifacts, which is one of the use cases you may have uh, if you're going to be requiring multiple versions or even maybe a tagging strategy. I didn't really see that in the announcement launch. Uh, but I expect those will be things that will come with feedback from customers like us and uh, others who will all say, hey, what about these things? Yeah, those are big ones, you know, being able to version and promote. Yeah, absolutely. And there's ways around it. Like you can store store your artifact if they're going to dedupe it. You just write it again with a new version. That kind of You can do that kind of monkey business. But I suspect these will come out soon. Overall, though, I think this is a great a great competitor to NPM and Maven and many of the open source tools. And, you know, if they can add those enterprise features in over time, I think that gets them to the next point. So I'm definitely excited to see what they do there. Luckily, this one did get the Jeff Barr blog treatment, so it does have a full walkthrough of how to set this up. Uh, if you are interested in getting started right away, they will walk you through the basics of getting your package repo set up. Well, the next one, uh, this is a bit... Uh, Above our technology grade, I think. <laughs> but I'm going to talk about it anyways because it's cool. Uh, but if you ask me how this actually works, I could not actually tell you uh, in any reliable fashion. But this is the label 3D point clouds with Amazon SageMaker Truth, uh, Ground Truth. Uh, and so if you know what Ground Truth is, it's basically a way for you to take data that machine learning kicked out as not being able to recognize and then basically pass that off to a third party or another company or to Mechanical Turk. Uh, then you can you know do identify like hey take this picture and identify all the stop signs, and then you know send it back to S3 and then you use that to retrain your models and you improve your machine learning accuracy. Uh, but apparently when they launched this, one of the industries that was most interested in this was the automotive industry or the self-driving automotive industry. Uh, but they need to be able to label three-dimensional data sets for autonomous driving, and so that's data typically captured by lidar sensors. Uh, these data sets are very large and very complex, weighing several hundred megabytes each. Uh, and to solve this, Amazon has now built Ground Truth 3D point labeling, uh, which provides a built-in editor and state-of-the-art assistive labeling features. 
Uh, it can take the data described by a manifest file, uh, which is a JSON, which includes both the locations of the frames in S3 and their attributes. The data sets may contain a single frame or multiple frame sequences, and then stitches that together, including potentially taking camera pictures. Uh, so it'll take basically the LiDAR data plus the data from eight cameras and combine it into something they call sensor fusion uh, to then allow a worker to be able to get a real-life view of the scene, identify things, label them, you know, this is a car, this is a pedestrian, this is a road, uh, and they can mark things like objects, uh, object tracking through multiple frames or semantic segmentation uh, to identify what is valuable and what is not. Uh, again, this is a little bit above my pay grade in machine learning. I don't really do this, but uh, I get the gist, and it's really cool if you're doing this, I think. Uh, so if you are using this, we'd love to hear about it because <laughs> it does sound really cool, uh, but definitely something to check out if you're doing 3D modeling uh, and need assistance with your machine learning data sets. wonder if the uh, paparazzi are using it to find George Clooney on the street. <laughs> There's actually an Asia feature they might be using for that more. We'll talk about later today. <laughs> I love the articles like this where I learned something based on a release. Like, yeah, you know, I never, I've, you know, worked with teams doing data, uh, data labeling for, you know, 2D data and text extraction and that kind of thing. So that never really thought about, you know, how, it, how would you label, you know, a LIDAR picture? Like, this is very fascinating and just goes to show how, how cutting edge, you know, some of these things are. Yeah, and I see, you know, when I first read it, I was like, I don't understand what this is. And you just read through it and you explain the use cases to you. You're just like, oh, I, I totally can see why this is a problem and how this adds value. Uh, it's always nice to see these really very clear articles that make sense. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, Amazon released the M6G instances, uh, which are the AWS Graviton 2 processors for the M family. Uh, they're now following that up a few weeks later with the C and the R 6G instances. Of course, the Graviton chips are a 40% better price performance over the x86-based EC2 uh, 5 series. Uh, and they're designed for compute-intensive workloads such as high-performance computing, uh, batch processing, ad-serving, video encoding, gaming, and scientific modeling. The uh, R6G also uh, is available with a 40% better price performance on the memory side. So if you have that memory need versus the compute need, they have both sides covered, plus that well-balanced uh, model with an M. A C6 large uh, costs you about $49.64 is a two CPU, four gigabit box. And the six, C6G 16X large, which is the largest, is $1,588 per month. And this is 64 uh, vCPUs and 128 gigs of memory. On the R6 side, you get on the R6, uh, R6G large for $7,358, you get two uh, processors and 16 gigs of memory. And on the R6G 16X large, you get uh, 64 vCPUs and 512 gigabytes of memory. So these are pretty big boxes if you need it on the ARM processor family. Uh, so again, we're happy to see those ARM chips coming. Maybe Apple will announce their new ARM Max at WWC here in a couple weeks. Yeah, these are super cool. And I finally have my first workload that can take advantage of, of this. So I'm, I'm excited to roll these out. I mean, is it coming to the end of the road for the x86 chip in general? At this type of price performance? I mean, my gut says yes. Um, I think you just look at Intel's difficulty in getting to 13 nanometers and 11 nanometers. Um, and the fact that their Xeon chip lines have slowed down considerably in the last few years, as well as their Intel desktop and laptop line. Couple that with, you know, a bunch of the vulnerabilities that come out and the way they design chips for the last 20 years. <laughs> I think there's major re-architecture required in the Intel x86 family to really get it to the next level. And so I think, you know, unless some major breakthrough happens in Silicon, I think in the next few years, I, I definitely think we're starting to end the end of the x86 era. 
A shared file system for your Lambda functions. Uh, this allows you to now mount EFS volumes to your Lambda functions at runtime. Uh, this can be used for all kinds of different use cases where you potentially have to store some type of state on disk uh, or that you're unable to use the temp uh, 512 megabyte space that Lambda would offer to you. Uh, this is available to you for EFS for both EC2, ECS, and Fargate and Lambda, all of the same EFS file system. So you can share it across multiple different types of workloads. And some of the use cases, uh, like they mentioned, including loading the most updated versions of files that change frequently, using data science packages that require storage space to load models, saving function state across invocations, uh, building apps that require access to large amounts of referenceable data, and migrating legacy apps to serverless technology. So just a few of the many use cases. Uh, the blog post example they gave us was using serverless machine learning inference uh, APIs to basically do machine learning with Lambda and then shut those things back down uh, after you finish the one little transaction you're doing. Uh, EFS performance will be something you need to watch out for on this one, though, of course, because burst credits will go through very quickly. And so do keep an eye on your EFS bandwidth and needs as you enable Lambda for them. But uh, overall, uh, you know, on one side, there's a camp that says this is the devil and you're ruining what makes Lambda great. And the other side of the world says, thank God, you finally made my life easier. <laughs> so it's really two worlds. I think there's uh, pros and cons to both models, and I, I like the option that I have flexibility now. Uh, I'm not forced to go one way or the other, but I do, I do like the idea of not having data in my lambdas. Uh, but if I needed it, I like to have the option. Yeah, and I mean, anytime we're storing state with lambdas that we're writing and we get to choose where we start, it's going to go S3 um, or Dynamo or wherever. But, uh, you know, I think this plays a, a good role where that same data set has to get accessed by applications that you don't control and own that require the data to be on a data on on a file system. So that's cool because now you could just incrementally start um, you know, manipulating that data or using it for other applications in a serverless fashion without having to having to ditch the the legacy app that needs it on a file system. Yeah, I went through the full roller coaster of why would they do this? It seems like an anti-pattern to, you know, like, are people going to go away from some of the key primitives of serverless to coming back to, oh, I could use it for this one use case. <laughs> you know, like you start thinking that about, you know, like you don't want to start making your serverless apps like completely stateful and, and, and causing issues there, especially with EFS being referenced by, you know, thousands of invocations of Lambda. I can see that being quite a problem. I, mean, I think the biggest use case that I can see is where you potentially have a very large you know, machine learning job that comes through EC2 that's going to take all this data, you're going to adjust it, you're going to update your models, and you push your models back out to EFS that then your lambdas pick up and use to actually do a data identification. I can see where that's really valuable without having to you know, boot up the lambda, load the temp space with that data set from S3 every time on every invocation. Um, I can see definitely see the advantages of it. Um, I am curious to see how it also impacts ENI usage in my uh, AWS account because when they first announced uh, Lambda in the VPC, there was uh, there were some issues <laughs> around IP exhaustion that I hope they uh, have avoided with EFS. Yeah, reading this, I went down the rabbit hole of like how they actually enabled this, how they made it work, and you know the, it's all the improvements they've made with Firecracker and Nitro in order to in order to, you know actually get this plumbed at that level so that and so it is it's pretty neat how they're changing you know, almost how we think about containers and how they run, you know, in order to get these things to work. It's cool. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. 
From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Well, one of the uh, complaints of cloud formation may have been solved finally, and this is the fact that uh, you can't really prevent someone from doing bad things like opening my server to the world. <laughs> uh, all ports, all all endpoints, all IP addresses, you could do that right now in CloudFormation, deploy that to your Amazon account, and then config will, of course, come back behind that and fix it for you or notify you that someone did the bad thing. Uh, but there's no way to really prevent it. And so one of the things that security people typically like to do is they like remediation, but they also like prevention. <laughs> and so Amazon is now releasing a preview version of what they're calling Amazon uh, Web Services CloudFormation Guard, uh, which is a new open source CLI for infrastructure compliance. This allows you to write a very lightweight and declarative syntax uh, set of rules that you can apply to your CICD pipeline or to your local desktop uh, through the CFN Guard utility. And the simple policy uh, allows you to check that your yeah, any requirements or prohibited resource configurations are prevented from being deployed into AWS. Uh, it's really great. They also have a little utility they built with this called CFN Guard Rule Gen, uh, so which will actually take a compliant CloudFormation template and create rules out of that compliant template uh, to help you get started with CFN Guard. Uh, this is in preview today, available to you to play with, and something to see and get further development over the next few months uh, as they get ready for GA on this one. But this is really cool if you're doing a lot of CloudFormation still and haven't moved over to Terraform. Uh, if you have moved over to Terraform, you're probably familiar with Sentinel, which is very similar as well. Uh, and this is kind of the answer to the Sentinel use case. So there you go. Well, the big difference between this and Sentinel is is the execution of it. Like this, this relies on either the developer having having you know the or the desire to run this and and fix things on their own, or deployments being enforced through some sort of centralized pipeline where this is not an option, right? Yeah. So, that's sort of the big difference I see in this. And so like, you know, as security teams, I think they're going to want a little bit more than, you know, this thing. It would be nice if you could actually, you know, make a rule that was like, this has been linted, you know, and before CloudFormation can execute. Yeah, and just get it as a uh, post-commit hook. I mean, there's there's lots of ways you can orchestrate this and make it work where you actually can run this in line before it's executed. And I'm sure people will take advantage of that. We've been doing tons of that on, uh, yeah, for Terraform, for some, we use some of our proprietary stuff and uh, it just helps a ton to prevent, because it's really tough when you're looking at PRs to have in mind everything that you should be looking for. And this just makes it so much easier to, to get that low-hanging fruit out of the way. Yeah, and the, the, the ability to create rules based on examples is a really huge addition like that's you know that's the hardest part typically is is writing rule logic that's you know doesn't block everything yeah <laughs> you know still allows your app to function but will still actually protect you uh from launching something that's vulnerable so this is great i'm sure you know it's a start i'm sure you can't just run it and let it go and have it have it work because nothing nothing in my experience is that simple but this is a huge leg up when you're getting started yeah, I wish uh, Terraform would come out with this for Sentinel, actually. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be great. Yeah, if you've uh, ever so... developed Sentinel rules, you want this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's always good to see more security stuff. I agree with you. It's it's a bit of an honor system right now, but you know, like Peter and you mentioned, you know, pre-commit hooks and a CI/CD pipeline is the only way to deploy your resources to AWS can solve a lot of those issues and concerns. 
Very nice. But, and the fact I mean, that it is flexible, I, I appreciate. It's not so opinionated. Sentinel only works with TFE. Mm-hmm. So if you don't want to use TFE, you're kind of out of luck. Um, so this is a bit nice. Well, uh, going back to that George Clooney comment, uh, Azure Media Services <laughs> has announced a new live video analytics capability. Uh, this is a new platform in preview for live video analytics in short LVA. The platform offers a capability of capturing, recording, and analyzing video and publishing the results, which could be video and or video analytics, to Azure services in the cloud or on the edge. Uh, LVA is designed to be a pluggable platform, so you can integrate video analysis modules, or they are custom edge modules built by you with OSS machine learning modules, uh, or with your own data or Azure ML capabilities. Uh, some uses include re- analyzing video and retail from cameras in the parking lot to detect and match incoming cars registered consumers. Uh, transportation and traffic video analysis can be used to monitor parking spots, track usage by automatic uh, no parking available signs, and apparently to track George Clooney, which I didn't even think about, but you guys had your own use case even before we got to the t- article, so well done. You can sell those pictures for big money. <laughs> and, you know, just as a general rule, we should always know where George Clooney is. <laughs> I think Tom Hanks should fall into that, too. I was a little concerned. That all of a sudden, I found out he's in Australia with COVID. I'm like, wait, who let him go to Australia? Like, yeah. <laughs> how'd that happen? He's an American treasure. He can't be in Australia. <laughs> just kidding. Uh, well, that's uh, it, the one thing about this Asia article that makes me a little nervous is uh, didn't, didn't they just win Jedi? So we just we just gave this LVA technology to the DoD. Uh oh, <laughs> that's a little concerning. Maybe. <laughs> All right. They also have some new VMs for you this week. Uh, everyone likes to launch new VMs. Uh, Azure likes to use it, uh, Alphabet Soup to name them. So these are the new DDV4 and DDSV4 and EDV4 and EDSV4. Virtual machines include temporary local disks. And then they also have a bunch that have remote disks, the DV4, the DSV4, the EV4, and the ESV4. Oh, that was hard. Uh, These new machines deliver up to roughly 20% faster CPU performance compared to their predecessors, which is the DV3 and the EV3 uh, VM families, uh, all available to you on the Xeon Platinum 8272 Cascade Lake chips. There you go. If memorizing those is required to get an Azure certification, I will never have one. Oof, yeah, I don't know if I could do that either. <laughs> but the the worst part is that trying, you know, I just I was like, okay, you know, we do a really good job telling everyone what your Amazon instance costs, and we tell you when you're Google, we know what your Google instance costs. But Azure pricing is is weird. <laughs> like even finding the reference to these these models in their EC you know instance pricing sheet is a nightmare. Uh, so hopefully. Someday someone will write easy two instances.info for Azure because I need it, please. I was going to say, hopefully it doesn't take, you know, a collaboration of open source software developers to make sense of the pricing model like it does for Amazon. Hey, you know, at this point, compared to what's on their website, I would take a group of open source developers on, on, on you know, basically screwing up. Oh, that. no, I, that's what I'm saying. Like, I love that tool. Um, it just it's a shame that it's required. <laughs> I did notice uh, I was going to the Azure Simple Calculator the other day and, you know, pops up a message saying, you know, we originally planned to kill this product at the end of June, but we've now decided to leave it running indefinitely until we can have full feature parity on the new calculator. And I'm like, well, good, because the new calculator is still missing almost everything. Right. <laughs> it only has 44 services on the new calculator. Uh, and I'm pretty sure there's more than like 200 and some odd services. Uh, so that's good to know that Simple Calculator will still last a little longer for you guys. 
Well, Google has a few things for us this week as well. Uh, the first one is a new API, and I actually think this is really cool. Uh, this is an API for dashboards uh, in their monitoring system. Uh, the dashboard API for cloud monitoring allows you to manage custom dashboards and charts programmatically in addition to managing them with Google Cloud Console. Uh, so that to release this for you, they have basically given you a GitHub repo, which has a set of APIs, Terraform modules, and capable, code capable for you to go take a look at. Uh, when they first announced this feature, people weren't able to really figure it out on their own. So this new GitHub repo helps you kind of figure out examples uh, and give you good patterns to build your dashboards with that API. So it's really great. Uh, they will be continuing to improve this template by covering more Google Cloud services, extending the dashboard templates to cover multiple services under one dashboard, and providing built-in filters and aggregators uh, capabilities to help you slice and dice your data in those dashboards all via code. Uh, so pretty great. Yeah, this is, I mean, in the lines of everything is code, like a dashboard should just be another deployable artifact with your yeah. environment. And so the more, I love this trend that's picking up steam. You're starting to see it. You know, if you can export, you make a dashboard in UI, usually you can export as code now in, mo in most of the cloud providers. The fact that they're providing these APIs, like it's fantastic. Uh, I want to see more of it. Remember the old days when Amazon, like the, Every single product was API first, then CLI, then console. Mm -hmm. And then we somehow strayed. And so this is good to get back to get back to the roots and make sure at least at least everything is available by API. Well, if you get into early access on anything, they're still typically very much uh, CLI or API driven. Uh, they don't typically have GUI stuff for those. Uh, but typically when they do finally announce it, they have some type of GUI. Uh, just because I think that makes it easier for people to adopt. Uh, the next one is uh, new, some new capabilities in Google Cloud Firewalls. Uh, the first one now available in beta is a Google Cloud hierarchical firewall policy. Uh, this provides new flexible levels of control so you can benefit from centralized control at the organization and folder level while safely delegating more granular control within a project to the project owner. Uh, VPC firewall rules are created at the network level within a given Google Cloud project. Uh, you can create both ingress and egress rules at the organizational level and apply. And these are not changeable, as I just mentioned. Uh, the other part of this is the new Firewall Insights, which is a new tool for firewall visibility and optimization that helps you keep your firewall configuration safe and easy to manage. Uh, firewall Insights helps you safely optimize your firewall config, the number of detection capabilities, including shadowed rule detection, uh, and many more. The hierarchical rules piece is kind of interesting way to definitely to delegate down um, limited set of, of privileges. I, Seems like it's going to be pretty challenging, though, to to actually implement without breaking. I think it would be. Stuff. I think it would be difficult um, for a couple different reasons. One is, you know, typically you'd want to have some level of least privileged firewall rule <laughs> at some hierarchical level, right? Like I'm going to only allow ports from eight thousand to nine thousand to be open, for example. Um, and then inside my account, I can then say I only want to have port 80, 80, 80 open. Uh, but then if I need something that's not in that rule set, how do you then override the hierarchy? Like, yes, I, yeah. I, I definitely see some challenges of how that would work. Uh, and so I'm kind of curious to see how well those actually get implemented. But I can see why some security people are super excited about this. <laughs> I can see lots of uh, incident, uh, lots of uh, tickets for the security team to evaluate exceptions. I mean, that's kind of what I hope. I hope the evaluation goes the other way around. It's like, you know, the organizational level, we're going to allow 443 and nothing else, right? Or just DNS or, you know, an internal service that we need. And then, you know, then there's, yeah, the exception process to per account add a thing. Yeah. But. It's interesting. I, I fought pretty hard for a global <laughs> exception that we'd allow port 80 as long as it redirected to 443 and port 443. 
uh, available that you know we wouldn't have to go through a security review process for those two ports as long as they're in those two conditions. And you know the amount of work that took to convince security team that that was okay, <laughs> it's yeah. kind of shocking. Uh, and I'm like, well, you know that we make RESTful web interfaces, right? <laughs> like they should all be four four three. You know, port eighty to four four three. We don't have to do that. That's just a customer friendliness thing. Uh, and so, you know, that one, you know, that's the harder one to kind of for them to swallow because they're worried that you're not going to remember to turn on that redirect rule. Uh, but uh, you know, and that it's there's definitely needs for global rules like that sometimes. I think as you know, SSL is becoming more ubiquitous, and you know, more things now fail, just hard fail if you don't have, you know, uh, TLS encryption going. So like it's. Uh, you know, I think it's a little easier than it used to be for on those bars where everyone was just abusing port 80. But uh, I mean, I think for you and I, where we're technologists, like we can go to a website and go, oh, it timed out. And then you look at it and say, oh, it probably needs SSL. And you just add the S to the H. Um, my wife, who's a normal computer user, she wouldn't figure that out. It's broken. <laughs> it's broken. It doesn't work. And I don't know what to do. Um, so I think there's there's use cases in certain consumer facing apps. I think where that's still important to have that redirect, even though it's you know, potentially an issue, especially if that redirect goes all the way back to the web server. I would argue that you should be able to handle that in Lambda or some other function to help return that. Or in the ALB now on Amazon, you get that built into the yep. ALB, which is pretty nice. Well, uh, this last story here from Google uh, sort of made me laugh a little bit. So first of all, uh, you know, Peter, how often do you ask your cloud architects uh, just how quickly you can exchange a request and a response uh, between two Google endpoints? Uh, do you do that often? Yeah, I mean, the last time I did that was for sure never. Okay, well, apparently that's a common question oh, uh, that you should be asking of your cloud architects, according to this article. Uh, I also have never asked that question in that way, I don't think. <laughs> I've asked it slightly differently. I think about, you know, what's the, what's the bandwidth between this data center and that data center, but I don't think I've ever asked between two specific endpoints. Uh, so Google has a whole article about how to measure that question, and so they, they comment that there are several ways to measure round-trip latency be between systems, including ping, uh, iperf and netperf, uh, but because these tools aren't implemented the same way and configured the same, different tools can return different methods. Uh, and this blog article goes on to give you several examples of like, oh, here's how ping works, and here's how netperf works, and here's why, you know, even though it looks exactly the same, you know, ping basically sends one packet every second, where netperf sends a packet right after each other. Uh, as soon as it gets confirmation on the wire that the packet went, it sends the next one. Um, which, you know, is a lot of words, which is really interesting if you're into networking, which I used to be a networking guy, so it sort of geeks out, and like, yeah, I really enjoy this. Uh, but then you you go, why would you write this article? And I think the only reason I could come up with is that uh, if you're in a competitive situation with AWS and you want to convince a customer that your network is far superior, you want them to use NetPerf and you want them to test the Google network and the Amazon network because most likely the latency on the Google network, which is completely theirs, is going to be better than the public internet on AWS. <laughs> and so this is a really well done smear article that doesn't actually call it AWS in any way, but that a ton of Google Solutions architects will point to when you're in a competitive situation with AWS. So <laughs> for that, bravo, Google. <laughs> <laughs> I approve. I, I get it. It's a little underhanded, but you know their network performance is is phenomenal. So it's, It is. You know, it is good. It, it's great. But it's also their network. And if their network fails, for some reason, you're down hard on Google. Where Amazon would argue that they have multiple carriers and they're using the power of the public internet and BGP to provide you more resiliency. And so you can either take that one way or the other. But uh, definitely, you know, it's, it definitely as you read through, you realize, oh, this is this is a sales thing <laughs> at the end of the day somewhere, which is kind of funny. 
Yeah, because I mean, from an end user standpoint, you still got to get into and out of the cloud. So you're still, your end user experience is going to involve the public internet. And if I'm building an app, I'm probably on AWS, I'm probably in one, you know, being smart about AZ distribution and and managing uh, managing my latency that way with my architecture. Uh, but Peter, we I would like you to uh, get on a call with Matt Cohn, who's one of your architects, and I'd like yes. you to ask him to what the to measure the responsiveness between two endpoints on on AWS and, and Google, and get back to us on that. Could you do okay, that? Okay, I'll do could that. You record it. Could you record it so we could hear Matt respond to you? <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll do my best. He's a busy guy. <laughs> he is a busy guy. Uh, all right. Well, that takes us through the, all the new news this week. Peter, let's do the lightning round. Azure budgets and cost management now accounts threshold edits and alert limits above 100%. <laughs> That's how you hide the fact that you're over budget. You just change the alert. Yeah. Oops. 120% of my budget is still within my budget if my threshold set to that. There you yeah. go. Yeah. yeah. I'm not within my budget, but I'm within my threshold. Azure app service hybrid connections for Linux apps now available. Anytime Azure talks about Linux, I just go, when did hell freeze over? <laughs> it's true. It's so great. It's so great when hell freezing over is a good thing. Mm-hmm. Azure Kubernetes service upgrade improvements are now in preview. Proving that Azure product management does read the Google press releases and did see that Google did it, so they're doing it too. What? You mean you can deploy a new cluster and then move the load over and charge the customer twice? <laughs> That's perfect. Thanks, Google. <laughs> <laughs> The Amazon CloudFront enables configurable origin connection attempts and origin connection timeouts. So now I can configure my origin to still never respond because I broke it for some reason. Yeah. I think there's a one of those uh, the Amazon game days, you know, the, the ability for the connection to not time out is super important. And now I can use CloudFront to accelerate it. Pretty nice. <laughs> New ways to cheat at Amazon game day. Yeah, really. <laughs> Amazon Aurora snapshots can be managed via AWS Backup. One more place that I can ignore when the backup fails. AWS Compute Optimizer now supports exporting recommendations to Amazon S3. Fantastic. Now I can take the recommendation that I'm wasting money, put it on S3 on the premium storage, and waste money there too. Thanks. Hey, if you want, you know, the CFO to ignore something, no better way to do that than put it in S3. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> AWS Transfer Family enables source IP as a factor for authorization. Uh, and now we're in the, the vein of uh, Amazon transfer f- features that are all the really bad security ones, aren't we? Right. We had, you know, FTP. Now we have source IP as an authorization factor. We're really just getting all the bad features now. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the age-old enterprise who desperately needs this right now. Yeah. The only way we can do it is if you do source IP. Sorry. Yeah. AWS Certificate Manager extends automation of certificate issuance via CloudFormation. Finally. This is one of those things that is frustrating. Like you, the fact that you can't really verify a certificate via CloudFormation. You have to do some sort of automation dance outside of it. I wish that they, if you have the DNS in your account, I wish that they would just have a CLI command that I could just say, okay, that thing I just did, now go put the, the validator into Route 53 for me <laughs> in the CLI level. Because you can do it sort of in the GUI. It'll tell you, like, hey, if yeah. you have it, you can click this button, and we'll automatically do it. It doesn't do it in the CLI. Yeah. AWS Amplify Console now supports deploying and hosting web apps managed in mono repos. I thought mono was the thing you didn't want to get. 
<laughs> Very nice. I'm not touching this one because I don't want to reopen the debate between multi-repo and mono-repo at all. Multi-repo it is. Some people right. swear by them. Yeah. <laughs> AWS service catalog now supports because only, only wait 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 let's go back let's go back. is that like a CrossFit thing like the only people who talk about mono repos are people who mono repo and people who do CrossFit are only people who talk about CrossFit is this kind of the same thing is that why we don't want to talk about it because <laughs> how do you know you're using a mono repo well I told you about it in the first ten minutes yeah that's true that is true get your cursor off of my word there we go. <laughs> AWS Service Catalog now supports sharing portfolios across an organization from a delegated member account. Which is the one thing I would want a Service Catalog to do is to be shared across my org. Thank you, I guess. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Go Service Catalog. Go! I think my favorite part about this show is when Justin hates Service Catalog. (laughs) (laughs) That makes total sense. I need a resource. Let's let's have another centralized team who has no idea what I'm doing define that resource in their own account for me to deploy. Well, you're a smart guy. Some other people <laughs> who need resources aren't as smart as you, and they don't know what they need, and they get the wrong thing, and then it's a mess. <sighs> Called Google. <laughs> Amazon ECS capacity providers now support delete functionality. Clearly someone forgot the D in CRUD. Yeah. Seems sort of basic, and I guess. I mean, Whoops. one more argument not to use CDK. Oops, I just did a loop, and now I have 10,000 capacity providers in my ECS CloudFormation that I d- can't delete. <laughs> oh, and my CloudFormation will never delete because I can't delete the resource. <laughs> and I'm at the hard limit, so the one I really need, I can't create. Yeah, right, exactly. Google is introducing Spark 3 and Hadoop 3 on Dataproc Image version 2. Funny, I was going to spark this whole list of lightning round topics this week. Just light around on fire. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Hell froze over again, and Justin takes it. Woo. I had, Ryan didn't read the show notes in advance. That was his fault. So. Yeah, no, it's a, I, 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 you know, if you don't come prepared, you're not going to succeed. It's my own fault, and I have to live with it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's how it works. Something tells me you'll be okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to take this one on the chin and, you know, I'm going to come back stronger next time. Yeah. There you go. I mean, you got two on the year so far. I mean, you only started, you know, 20 weeks behind the rest of us. Yeah. So you're, you're doing just fine. You're doing great. I'm, I'm happy with my performance. Uh, well, I have a couple of things to share. Uh, first of all, we had a fantastic interview with Amaran Chichar of CEO of Spot. Uh, he joined us uh, just a few days after the announcement that NetApp was going to buy Spot. Uh, so we had a chance to interview him and he told us why he's, you know, excited about the NetApp acquisition as much as he can because it uh, is still uh, in process. So he can't give us too much details. Uh, he also talked about, you know, some of the things Spot Instance is doing and what they're doing beyond Spot uh, instances, which I didn't know about, uh, things like Ocean and some other things. So definitely check that out on our feed. Uh, it's a really great interview, only about 30 minutes long. Uh, and Amaran was a fantastic guest. So definitely check that out. And then on July 9th, Amazon is having a cloud containers conference where they'll be talking about all things containers uh, using ECS and EKS. Hopefully we'll get a new version of EKS then too. Fingers crossed. Yeah. And then uh, for those of you who are like us, who've been neglecting and learning about Amplify, there is a two-day conference for you July 15th and 16th on AWS Amplify and how you can use it to jumpstart your web and mobile application development work. Uh, which also should be quite good. So do put those uh, on your bookmarks and calendar invites to go sign up for those right away and enjoy these uh, fantastic opportunities from AWS to learn more. 
Awesome. I want to check out that containers conference. That yeah, should be good. Oh, I'm flying yes. that day. Damn it. <laughs> well done, Peter. Well done. I'm sure it'll be recorded. Uh, I'm sure there'll be announcements too, or something around there, around containers, I'm sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so we're definitely looking yeah. forward to uh, a lot more web conferences here as we continue down the path of COVID uh, and shelter in place and socially distance. Uh, we still haven't heard anything about reInvent, which I'm a little bit surprised about. I figured that would have been canceled by now. That's got to uh, be gone. There's no way. I, imagine. I mean, the, the rumor mill says that the hotels uh, that are all typically reInvent hotels have very, very cheap rates right now for that week, which is a pretty good indicator that they have a glutton of inventory now available that they previously had locked up. So uh, I do suspect that it will still be canceled, although they have not announced it yet. I think maybe they're, they're curious to see if uh, the eight week Google cloud next conference, which starts, I think next week uh, is a big success or not. And then if they're going to take reinvent and turn it into a multi-week event as well. So you'll definitely see what happens. Uh, it was interesting. They had the Amazon summit for Europe this week. Uh, and they offered all attendees a $25 gift uh, certificate or Amazon credit if you uh, filled out the surveys. So I think they're desperately looking for feedback on the virtual summit <laughs> to make their final decision on reInvent if I were to read the tea leaves a little bit uh, and what that was all about. Uh, so we'll definitely start to see something very soon. Well, that's it for the Week in Cloud. Thank you, Jonathan. Or Jonathan's not here. <laughs> Everyone but Jonathan. Yeah. Not to thank you to Jonathan. <laughs> Thanks, Ryan and Peter. We'll see you next week. See ya. And I, till next time. And that is the weekend cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Foghorn Consulting. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and tweet us your feedback at hashtag #thecloudpod. Or join our Slack channel. Go to our website, thecloudpod.net, for sign up instructions. Mm-hmm.